0: Are you listening to this on Spotify right now? You should be on Spotify. You can listen to all your favorite artists and podcasts in one place for free. You don't even need a premium account. Spotify has a huge catalog of podcasts on every topic, including the one you're listening to right now on Spotify. You can follow your favorite podcast. So you never miss an episode. Premium Spotify users can download episodes to listen to offline. So wherever you are, you can hear me. It'll be like we're on that vacation in the mountains together. And of course, you can easily share what you're listening to with your friends on Instagram. If you haven't done so already, be sure to download the Spotify app and search for Be Reasonable with your moderator, Chris Paul. Or you can browse to find new podcasts in the tab marked Your Library. Oh, and make sure to follow me so you never miss an episode of Be Reasonable. For I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Knock that mud off your boots, boy. Mama's ringing the dinner bell. It's high noon. High noon would be a weird time to have dinner, I guess. But it's Tuesday, August 4th, 2020. Uh, lots going on today. Um, there has been footage all over the Internet. Uh, maybe you've seen it of a massive explosion at a port in Lebanon. Uh, there does not seem to be any conclusive explanation right now, but it, the video is absolutely chilling. Like, so, I, I don't know how people just are taking videos of important stuff when it happens, but uh, the explosions are unbelievable. Some of the people who were taking footage – their buildings were rocked, too. It's. I don't know. It's mind blowing. I've never seen anything like it, um, at least not in you know, real life. Uh, yesterday, the George Floyd body camera footage was released um, a good nine weeks after the incident occurred, which is a strange fact. Um, and another strange fact is that no one is really talking about it. And I wish I knew why that was. It might be because the video shows the officers trying to work with him, trying to deal with him, trying to get him in the car, uh, the police car and, uh, him being resistant the entire time and him seeming either incredibly emotional or real real out of sorts um the officers offered to do things like roll the windows down for him because he was saying that he was claustrophobic he was saying that he was going to die in the back of the police car all of these things are or seem to be related to something called excited delirium which is actually mentioned by the officers in the transcripts of the arrest. And it's something that's mentioned rather often in police literature, including in Minneapolis. And the understanding was, or what they're saying is, is that that's what they were dealing with, with George Floyd. And that's why those particular methods were used. None of that is to excuse the fact that the man actually died from having a knee on his back. Um, I talked about this a lot in the Apocalypse Now episode. But it does kind of change the narrative on what was happening in a racial context. And the fact that they have not put out the body camera footage until now could be because it changes that narrative. And it actually is very important to know what happened because if it was not a racial incident and it was made into a racial incident, then we have a real problem. And that problem becomes political, not about race, about politics and about gaining advantage. And it's kind of startling that the media hasn't seem to care about the body camera footage. Um, But everyone can watch that for themselves. I'm sure that that will develop more over the next few days. Uh, I don't feel comfortable coming down on any side of that situation at this point. I don't really think anyone should. Um, But I do think that it's important to consider that the story we were told might not be correct. And so let's switch gears. I want to talk a little bit about how this, the way we look at media is failing us and it's making conversations impossible. And I'm sure that if you're listening to my podcast, you have experienced this yourself. Uh, It becomes impossible to make any points to people on the other side. Because they believe that they have the full summation of facts and you cannot show them even really well researched and well thought out counter arguments because they will immediately marginalize them and say that they are either conspiracies or from a right wing source. And they do this with every single thing that you can possibly tell them so these people are not interested in having a conversation and they're not they're certainly not interested in finding out what's right i mean the idea that because something appears in an outlet that is right of center it's therefore invalid like as if everyone knows i'm right So if you're disagreeing, you're therefore wrong. And that's so unproductive. The fact is, if the media is completely biased in one direction, the New York Times, the L.A. Times, the Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, NBC. And they all believe that those are objective sources of journalism. Then there's no way to penetrate that. The fact is, those journalists are aren't looking at actual information either. They're all just telling a story and making an argument so that whatever information comes out in the world fits their narrative. And they display everything as Trump or Republicans always being bad. We know that is impossible, that they are always wrong. Ask them, ask this person that's browbeating you with their headlines Ask them to tell you one thing that Trump did right and one thing that Anthony Fauci did wrong. It shouldn't be hard. It's a very simple question. I can do it. Trump shouldn't have said uh, that the disease was just going to go away. Okay? Shouldn't have said that. Fauci shouldn't have said that the disease was never going to be a threat in the first place. If someone can't draw both of those sentences out of their brain and put it out through their mouth, that person is not a very serious person. It's really, really, really easy to go through and say, well, Trump said this and Trump said that and Trump said this, and this would be like this if it weren't for this and look at the other countries and they'll avoid talking about anything of substance Because they know that in their circles, saying things like Trump called a hoax, which he didn't, he just didn't. They think that those things are like applause lines. Everybody's going to be like, oh, yeah, that's so true. Yeah, you're right, man. This guy really knows what he's talking about. Like, no, you just read Vox. That's not a point. You're not making a point. And when you destroy the ability for anyone else to have their views taken seriously, you've ended the conversation. This is what happened with uh, the Jonathan Swan interview on Axios. People think that Trump looked like a fool the entire time. And one of the examples that they point to is when they're having a discussion about covid cases and Trump is like our deaths as a percentage of cases are actually quite low. Lower than average, which means when people get it, we're doing a pretty good job of making sure that they don't die. And Swan's like, yeah, but you have to look at it as a proportion of population. And Trump says you can't do that. And Swan's like, uh, I, ju- I just did. OK, but that doesn't mean it makes sense. The disease got here. It spread rapidly. And now there are cases. Period. There's been no proof anywhere that there is a good method of stopping the transmission. Total cases and total deaths are an important metric, of course, but they are not the only metrics. And it is annoying to me, and I'm guessing to you, that reporters consistently frame questions in a way that makes sure Trump is screwed either way. Okay, so when Swan says something, for instance, like, do you have an exact date when every American will have access to the same same day testing that you have here in the White House, you can either play that game and try to give him an answer or you can reframe the question, which they will then paint as you dodging the question, even though that question is senseless. No, there's no date when every American can do same-day testing over and over and over and over and over every day. That's ridiculous. It's especially ridiculous with a disease that you can test positive for 83 days after you got it, months after you've stopped being contagious, and you can still test positive for it. So all of these narratives, all these wrong narratives – that have settled in around coronavirus and have become common knowledge by the media repeating them over and over and over again, are now the basis that uh, upon which we have to make these decisions and communicate things to the public. It's ridiculous. Like the question Jonathan Swan asked is irrelevant. But Trump can't explain its irrelevance without being shown to not care. And that is what happens when we are treated and spoken to like children. And the other funny thing is that these interviewers always ask like they have some piece of information that Trump's not privy to. It's incredible to me, man. Like there's this segment where he's trying to uh, get Trump to say that there is systemic racism in police departments. And Trump, of course, is not going to say that, not only because he doesn't believe it, uh, but because there's not any statistical evidence that it's true. And then Swan repeats the oft-repeated claim that black Americans die at 2.5 times the rate of white Americans at the hands of police. Now, that statistic is only true. If you're measuring that based on population, which is an irrelevant metric, it is not true at all when you look at it in terms of violent crimes and police interactions. That is what we should actually be looking at. And I talked about that a lot too in the apocalypse now episode so if you want to think more about that it's all there the problem with marginalizing everything as right-wing or conspiracy is that people will decline to even look at the information look at the article look at anything else because they've been told it's a conspiracy theory and they think that if like They look at the stuff that the bad people look at. They're going to become one of the bad people. Like, that's ridiculous. And by the way, I say this because I know it's true because it used to be true for me. Okay. I would look at stuff and be like, no, come on. Yeah, of course, the Washington Examiner is going to say something like that. Of course, the National Review is going to say something like that. And so I would just disregard it. But that was stupid. Because those people are also getting information from sources, also analyzing the data, the information that they're getting, and they're trying to communicate it to you. The idea that everyone on the right is telling their story as a means of destroying the country or making life bad for minority populations, it's absolutely absurd. And it's like there really are bad sources of information. It's on a scale just like anything else. I mean, National Review is very responsible. They are from the right, but they're very responsible. Breitbart, on the other hand, sometimes breaks stories, but Breitbart is not particularly responsible. And they have some viewpoints that I don't align with at all. So I simply don't read them. I don't use Breitbart articles to prove things, just like people on the left should not be sending you little blogs from Huffington Post and telling you that you're wrong. It's the same thing with New York Times op-eds. That's not factual just because it appears in the New York Times. An op-ed is an op-ed. National Review, for instance, is an opinion journal. It's not a news source. They display some news, like from the AP or Reuters or whatever, but it's an opinion journal. And when people are sharing New York Times articles, opinion articles, as if they're news, those people aren't smart. Don't let these people tell you that you are wrong based on their opinion of your sources. And this happens all the time. I see it on Twitter all day long. Like, I can't believe that. Ha ha ha. ha. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead and don't believe it. I don't care. Like I've said a million times, guys, I'm not trying to convince anyone of anything other than that. They should not act like they're hundred percent. Correct. I know again. I know. I always know in what ways I could be wrong. Like, is it possible that the Democrats aren't pushing for nationwide mail-in balloting to, Take political advantage? Sure. It's possible. It's extraordinarily unlikely based on the context of the discussion. And here's another one. I actually forgot to mention this yesterday. So Colorado uh, a County, uh, El Paso County in Colorado sent out their mail-in ballots. They are color-coded depending on which political party you're in. Why would anyone do that? Why would you make it easy for someone to see the ballot and think, oh, that's a Republican ballot. I don't like Republicans. Let me throw that out. We know for a fact these ballots get lost a lot. This is from Real Clear Politics. It's also reported on CNN. There have been fact checks. This is a real legitimate story. One in five ballots rejected as fraud is charged in New Jersey mail-in election. The New Jersey attorney general is charging four men, including the vice president of the city council and a candidate for that body. This is Patterson, New Jersey. I'm quoting the article here. In the city council election, 16,747 vote-by-mail ballots were received But only 13,557 votes were counted. More than 3,190 votes, 19% of the total ballots cast, were disqualified by the Board of Elections. Due to the pandemic, Patterson's election was done through vote-by-mail. Community organizations, such as the city's NAACP chapter, are calling for the entire election to be invalidated. Over 800 of the ballots in Patterson were Invalidated for appearing in mailboxes improperly bundled together, including a including one mailbox where hundreds of ballots were in a single packet. The bundles were turned over to law enforcement to investigate potential criminal activity related to the collection of ballots. The Board of Elections disqualified another twenty three hundred ballots after concluding that the signatures on them did not match the signatures of voter records. Okay, so that's fucking insane. That's a small election. Again, 78,000 votes in three states. And they lose 3,200 ballots in Patterson, New Jersey. Invalidated, not like lost in the mail, but they lost from the count, lost from the ballots that were filled out, 3,200. Are we supposed to assume all 3,200 were fraudulent? Who knows? Votes don't get count because they were improperly bundled. That can't be good. Who's bundling them? The fact that people go and collect people's mail-in ballots and then bundle them should indicate just one more way that nationwide mail-in balloting introduces fraud into the system. Wrong signatures, bundled ballots. How many more methods... Of fraudulent behavior do you need before you say, oh, yeah, maybe this actually is a problem. I feel like I'm going to feature one of these cases every day right now because it's happening a lot. And it shouldn't be happening at all. And again, this isn't about absentee voting. Anyone who wants to apply for a mail-in ballot can do so and get it. And it's funny, I just watched the uh, Kaylee McEnany press conference today, and one of the reporters was uh, saying specifically that there was no, that there's no fraud in mail-in voting. And that is just flat out wrong. Jonathan Swan in the president's interview, he was saying, we've had mail-in voting since the Civil War. And it's like, no, that's absentee mail-in voting. You request the ballot and then you get it. And they're pretending that you still have to do that. Yes, you do still have to do that for absentee voting. The whole discussion right now is to make the entire country eligible to vote that way. It's insane. And so Trump was giving a speech this morning about money set aside to preserve wildlife and natural resources. And he said uh, instead of saying Yosemite, he said like Yosemite or something like that, which is how I talk to my Jewish friends. So instantly they cover up whichever whatever important news happened is now off the record. No one's going to get that at all. But they do know that he didn't say Yosemite right, because that's very important the New York Times uh, White House correspondent Maggie Haberman posted about this mispronunciation like as some slam on Trump, because, you know, that's what the objective news is supposed to focus on. Making the president look stupid. Everybody mispronounces words. I've probably mispronounced words or stuttered. Well, I probably didn't mispronounce words, but I probably stuttered in this podcast and I probably do it. In every podcast. Does it make me stupid? That's for you to judge. Uh, Biden can't finish sentences. He doesn't. The man literally doesn't know where he is. You know, and months ago, it's funny because I, I find myself making counterpoints to my own arguments. Because months ago, I was telling friends of mine that maybe this whole narrative about Biden's mental decline was overboard and cruel because Biden for his entire life had a problem with stuttering and had to correct that problem. And so he, he used to deal with a legitimate speech impediment. And I don't feel like making fun of him for that if that's what's constantly coming out in the flubs. But that isn't it. Okay. I've been watching this more and more. The decline is noticeable. He does not seem to know where he is. And when someone tells you about uh, about Biden, ask them, hey, what does Biden stand for? Give me one issue where you know what Biden stands for. And if they are able to tell you one, which they probably cannot because Biden doesn't have any issues. Biden has an agenda that the party put together. And so now people will say, well, Biden stands for blah, blah, blah. No, Biden stands for the acquisition of more political power, just as he always did. There is no position that Biden has that he didn't have the other position on at some time in his political career, which tells you he's not operating on principles. And so through all of this, now we are turning society into like a sugar daddy economy. Like they'll buy you what you need. We'll get you home. Sure. Oh yeah. We'll buy dinner. No big deal. Oh, you need clothes. Yeah, we got clothes. You don't want to work. That's okay. I'll give you allowance and they'll do all that until they get your vote. And then you won't get the things, at least not the way you really wanted them, but you will still get fucked. Sweet sugar baby economy. We've done it. What an accomplishment. And so here's, here's the last thing that I'm going to tackle because this is something that I think everyone should be aware of. An MSNBC producer uh, resigned yesterday, quit her job. Her name is Ariana Pacari. You can find her open letter online if you want to check it out or share it. But I'm going to read it to you right here. Uh, okay. Just quit. That's advice Alec gave me a year and a half ago when I expressed concerns about my job. You just quit. It's that simple. Stay at MSNBC at least until the midterms, Jeffrey said a couple years back. He advised to watch and see what happens. Hang in there. You're needed, Elizabeth recommended last winter. I was in your shoes when I was younger, but I stuck it out. A year and a half ago, simply quitting my job without knowing my next step sounded pretty radical. So I stuck it out a bit longer until we were in the middle of a pandemic to make a truly radical move. July 24th was my last day at MSNBC. I don't know what I'm going to do next exactly, but I simply couldn't stay there anymore. My colleagues are very smart people with good intentions. The problem is the job itself. It forces skilled journalists to make bad decisions on a daily basis. You may not watch MSNBC. But just know that this problem still affects you, too. All the commercial networks function the same. And no doubt that content seeps into your social media feed one way or the other. It's possible that I'm more sensitive to the editorial process due to my background in public radio, where no decision I ever witnessed was predicated on how a topic or guest would quote unquote rate. The longer I was at MSNBC, the more I saw such choices. It's practically baked into the editorial process and those decisions affect news content every day. Likewise, it's taboo to discuss how the rating scheme distorts content or it's simply taken for granted because everyone in the commercial broadcast news industry is doing the exact same thing. But behind closed doors, industry leaders will admit the damage that's being done. We are a cancer and there is no cure a successful and insightful TV veteran said to me. But if you find a cure, it would change the world. As it is, this cancer stokes national division, even in the middle of a civil rights crisis. The model blocks diversity of thought and content because the networks have incentive to amplify fringe voices and events at the expense of others, all because it pumps up the ratings. This cancer risks human lives, even in the middle of a pandemic. The primary focus quickly became what Donald Trump was doing poorly, to address the crisis rather than the science itself. As new details have become available about antibodies, a vaccine, or how COVID actually spreads, producers still want to focus on the politics. Important facts or studies get buried. This cancer risks our democracy, even in the middle of a presidential election. Any discussion about the election usually focuses on Donald Trump, not Joe Biden, a repeat offense from 2016, parentheses, Trump smothers out all other coverage. Also important is to ensure citizens can vote by mail this year, but I've watched that topic get ignored or killed numerous times. Context and factual data are often considered too cumbersome for the audience. There may be some truth to that, parentheses, our education system really should improve the critical thinking skills of America. But another hard truth is that it is the job of journalists to teach and inform, which means they might need to figure out a better way to do that. They could contemplate more creative methods for captivating an audience. Just about anything would improve the current process, which can be pretty rudimentary. Parentheses. Think basing today's content on whatever rated well yesterday or look to see what's trending online today. Occasionally, the producers will choose to do a topic or story without regard for how they think it will rate. But that is the exception, not the rule. Due to the simple structure of the industry, the desire to charge money for commercials, as well as the ratings bonuses that top-tier decision-makers earn, they always relapse into their, own, their old profitable programming habits. I understand that the journalistic process is largely subjective and any group of individuals may justify a different set of priorities on any given day. Therefore, it is particularly notable to me, for one, that every rundown at the network is basically the same, hour after hour. And two... They use this subjective nature of the news to justify economically beneficial decisions. I've even heard producers deny their role as journalists. A very capable senior producer once said, our viewers don't really consider us the news. They come to us for comfort. Again, personally, I don't think the people need to change. I think the job itself needs to change. There is a better way to do this. I'm not so cynical to think that we are absolutely doomed, parentheses, though we are on that path. I know we can find a cure if we can figure out how to send a man to the moon, if Alex Trebek can defy the odds with stage four pancreatic cancer, and if Harry Reid can actually overcome pancreatic cancer, he's now cancer free, then we can fix this, too. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. I know James Baldwin wasn't thinking about MSNBC when he wrote that line in 1962, but those words spoke loudly to me in the summer of 2020. Unfortunately, many of the same ailments are still at stake today. Now, maybe we can't really change the inherently broken structure of broadcast news, but I know for certain that it won't change unless we actually face it in public or at least try to change it. Through this pandemic and the surreal, alienating lockdown, I've witnessed many people question their lives and what they're doing with their time on this planet. I reckon I'm one of those people, looking for greater meaning and truth. As much as I love my life in New York City and really don't want to leave, I feel fortunate to be able to return to Virginia in the near term to reconnect with family, friends and a community of independent journalists. I'm both nervous and excited about this change. Thanks to COVID-19. I'm learning to live with uncertainty. And so very soon I'm going to be seeking you out. Blah, 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 blah. That was just her nice little ending, which seems unnecessary. Um, But this is the, this is what the news really is guys. So if you think that this same thing doesn't happen in the print media, You are incorrect. This is prevalent in print media, in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, in the LA Times. These papers are in business to make money. They give you information that you want to read so they can continue to make money. Does that make all media bad? No. Does it make all journalists bad? No. But it does mean that if you're not doing the work yourself, if you're not doing the critical thinking for yourself then you are screwed because the actions they are trying to lead you to are the ones which will continue to profit them. They have no interest in telling you the truth. Their interest is in getting you to pay attention, just like the social media companies, just like anything else. I've said this many times. The New York Times is a content app. They supply woke content for people who want to read woke content. And they know that that is the content that their readers want to read because they study the data on what people connect to and supply more of it. And then they sell their reader data to marketing companies. And now they are creating scripted television. This is not a serious news operation anymore. And I'm going to leave you with that. I didn't go running today, so I feel like maybe my brain was a little foggy. And so if... uh, If something was bad about today's episode, you're just going to have to forgive me and I'll do better tomorrow. Um, But that's just me communicating my insecurity and trying to uh, make you understand that if you thought it was bad, don't worry. I thought it was bad too. I'm really screwing myself here, aren't I? Um, All right. I will talk to you tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Listen to more, Hope's Fall. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. for tonight's broadcast.